The Reverend Hunter Podcast is brought to you by Caldera Lab. Hey, listen, I have been using Caldera Lab, uh, their regimen program, for over a month. I got to say, I, I'm, not, uh, I'm not one who usually washes his face before bed, and, and uh, my dear beloved Courtney gives me grief about that. But with Caldera Lab and their regimen, I have been doing this now every night, wash my face, put on the little, uh, put on the eye stuff under my eyes. Then there's this oil you apply. And, and then in the morning, I've been putting on the base layer. And I got to tell you, uh, I'm skeptical. I'm skeptical, but I have been loving it. And Courtney has been loving it. Do I look younger? I mean, hard to tell, but uh, I feel younger. And I think you should also try the Caldera Lab Regimen. You can get 20% off. That's, that's the biggest discount they've ever offered. 20% off with the code REVHUNT at calderalab.com. Uh, the link is in the show notes. So click through. You will make an unforgettable first impression. And people will say to you, as they've been saying to me, including my dear wife, you look younger. You can look younger too with Caldera Labs Regimen. Try it out. Link in the show notes. Hello and welcome to the Reverend Hunter Podcast. This is Tony Jones. I'm the Reverend Hunter, joined as always by the... Bucky Barnes to my Captain America, Brandon. Sadly, I have no idea who you're talking about <laughs> again. I, uh, <laughs> you haven't watched the Captain America movies, huh? No, I. The last Marvel or comic book movie, X Men, in like 1999. <laughs> mm. You know, I've seen some lists where people think that. Um, the Captain America Winter Soldier is maybe the best Marvel movie of all time. So that might be worth uh, if you're going to dip your toe in. All right. Might have to check that out. The Yeah, Winter Soldier. I think that's what it's called. Well, uh, it's not winter around here, man. It's warm. And I just got back from Texas where I was dropping my youngest kid off at college. And uh, let's just say moving into a dorm when it's 107 degrees outside is not the most enjoyable. Yeah, that sounds terrible. That's <laughs> <laughs> not like fun at all. <laughs> no, it it was it was hot, man. And I mean, of course in Texas everything is air conditioned, but then you walk outside and it's like stepping into a blast furnace cuz it's windy and hot. So the wind you know, at that temp the wind doesn't cool you off, it just makes you hotter, I think. And then uh Aiden, we drove down. We drove down in Aiden's car because he is the third child, and third children are spoiled, and so he gets a car at college, which his two older siblings did not. Um, his car couldn't even like his car AC on max AC blasting couldn't keep up. Like couldn't even shoot cold air out anymore. Well, I know you've made fun of me in the past for saying this, but is it a dry heat? <laughs> <laughs> You know, it's not that dry of a heat. It's it's not like Houston humid, but it's like Minnesota humid for sure in Dallas. You know, I 
when I the, I noticed that the inner panels of the the glass doors into his dorm building were sweating, you know, had water dripping down them. So uh, it's yeah, it's steamy, man. It's steamy. Uh, God bless him. He's going to be practicing rugby. It's going to be 104 on Thursday when rugby practice kicks off. So uh, yeah, good for him. He'll I'm sure he'll be able to eat unlimited numbers of calories in the uh in the TCU dining hall. And let me just say I'm I'm happy to get that kid off my grocery bill. <laughs> I heard he eats a lot of meat. <laughs> Holy smokes. So we're uh yeah, we're we're not going to have to buy ground beef by the truckload anymore, which will be nice. Um yeah, Courtney and I are going to settle down to a, a quiet life here where I've been cleaning his room. The amount of dog hair in that room is uh i mean you could weave multiple sweaters with the dog hair <laughs> that's <laughs> that's in aiden's room so i keep vacuuming it up filling the vacuum ha- emptying it out going back hitting it again uh cleaning out clothes that have been on the closet floor for i'm guessing years probably yeah I mean, if it were me it would be years yeah clothes i didn't even know existed that we even had so it's uh it's a good purging time for us yeah how about you? What you been up to? Not a whole lot. Went camping last weekend. Uh, went up north Sturgeon Lake, uh, McCarthy Beach State Park. Beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. Really? That's awesome. Would highly recommend. Okay. Was this your was this your do-over for when you, you two got sick on the last camping trip? Yes. <laughs> okay. But it was uh it was great. We stayed an extra night. We were there four nights. So Oh my gosh, dude. That's that. that's like a legit getaway. Yeah, it was kind of random for me, but it was nice. And the Talk North Network didn't go up in flames with you gone for four nights? Well, I <laughs> <laughs> maybe did, but whatever. <laughs> I'm sure you came back to a ton of emails and text messages and yeah. Yeah. I mean I did three shows this morning alone. So yeah. <laughs> Golly, yeah. I, uh, I'm heading into the Boundary Waters cool. on Monday uh, with a crew of pastors and friends. And uh, so that should be good. So, yeah, I'll do the same thing. I'll come back. And as soon as we get down to Grand Marais the following Friday, my phone will start, you know, lighting up with all the missed text messages. I do wish there was, you know, you can do an auto reply on your email. I wish there was an auto reply you could do on your text messages. I think you kind of can. I think you can turn it off like the do not disturb kind of. Yeah, but can you do it so it bounces? I mean, there's one that's like, hey, I'm driving. I'll I'll text you back when I'm done driving. I, I should look and see if there's one that says, hey, I'm on a canoe trip. Uh, I have no cell coverage. I'll text. I'll, I'll hit you back when I'm in town. I should look for that. I, I, I have a special I'm, note that says I'm editing or working on audio. So Yeah, that's what you could do. Yeah, leave me alone. <laughs> Um, well, look, uh, lots going on fun time of year and it's really an exciting time of year because a week from today, my friend, Jessica Carewcraft, my new friend, her book comes out. Her book is called why we need to be wild. One woman's quest for ancient human answers to 21st century problems. Jessica and I, uh, I think we connected through social media I'm a huge fan of her book. I read it uh, before she and I had this conversation. It's really fascinating. She uh, she was like so many of us, kind of caught up in the 
daily grind of work, raising kids, living in an urban environment, but uh, had just a growing sense that this was not the life that she wanted to live, not the life even that she was meant to live. Um, And so she started trying out um, different ways of reaching back in time, way back to like the Paleolithic era. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. Like, how can I learn from our earliest ancestors for whom we have archaeological evidence, like pre, before we have any kind of written records to people who we only know about them from finding, you know, their uh, chiseled tools, from finding their bones, from figuring out what they ate, um, how they lived through this archaeological evidence. It's fascinating. And she's really a journalist, you know, she's like a um, an immersive, it's, it's an immersive journalism project, what she did with her two kids, diving into ways of being that have been lost to so many of us. And yet, as she and I talked about, these were the very skills that led our species to be so successful that we were able to evolve and and develop these really large brains, you know, and be able to ultimately cultivate land and and live in community in ways that a lot of other, you know, all other sentient beings lack. Um, But, and we also agree, Jessica and I also agree that um, some of the very things that gave us this success as a species are now holding us back. Um, So, or they've gone too far. It's It's hard to say, but what one fascinating thing is that her book and my book have so much overlap uh, that it's. She's also read my book and and was very generous in providing um, a blurb for it that's already on the on the Amazon page for my book. Um, but yeah, I'm so excited to have her on right here on the brink of her book launch. She, if she's coming to a town near you, you can follow her on social media. That those links, the link to her website is in the show notes. The link to the book is also in the show notes, but I know she's doing a lot of um, book readings at bookstores, particularly around the Pacific Northwest. Uh, so if you get a chance on the West Coast or as as the book, I'm sure is going to uh, uh, really grab a following um, as she moves across the country and does events, definitely check her out in person, but for sure buy the book, Why We Need to Be Wild. Um, also, yeah. speaking of books, don't you yeah. have one coming out soon? I do, buddy. <laughs> yep, yep. I've, I've just, I just got an endorsement this morning when I woke up. It's always great to wake up to a, an endorsement sent in by, you know, another um, a fellow author and Jim Shockey, who was on the podcast a couple months ago, sent a very enthusiastic endorsement. So that'll be, I'm sure, on the back cover of the book. Yeah, my book will be out in um, in March. Awesome. Looking forward to it. I'll, I'm sure I'll be talking about it more here. Yeah. Yeah. And it'll also be the first book I've read in years. So, oh, just wow. You an endorsement on Okay. Well, maybe you can just listen to the audio book because I know you need more audio content oh, yeah, yeah. from me. First. You want to hear my voice more. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, my book is coming out for sure. But this book first is coming out next week, August 22nd, is the launch date. You can pre order it now on. Amazon, Barnes & Noble, bookshop.org, wherever you buy books, go into your local bookstore. That's a great way to get it. 
Um, so here's my conversation with Jessica Carew Craft. She is the author of Why We Need to Be Wild, One Woman's Quest for Ancient Human Answers to 21st Century Problems. And thanks everybody for listening to the Reverend Hunter Podcast. Jessica, thank you for coming on. I'm thrilled <laughs> to have you on this podcast because, um, you know, we've read each other's books, so we're going to have a little mutual admiration society here. Absolutely. I love your There's, stuff. I'm, I'm thrilled to be here, too. Thank you well, I, so much. Yeah. I mean, it's funny because um, I think, you know, it's one of those, this is how it works in... 2023, you started following me on Instagram and I'm like, oh, that looks interesting. I mean, I don't follow everybody back, but that was like, oh, dang. And then I'm like, oh, she has a book coming out. Sweet. And then, <laughs> you know, we started DMing and we switched over to email and um, I, I knew, I just knew from like the marketing copy of, of your book that we, there would be resonance between our two books and kind of what we're both, but I had no freaking clue. I mean, like mm -hmm. child rearing, divorce, falling in love again. Like, I mean, there's all mm -hmm. these other threads too that um, are part of it. So we can get into all that. I will just say like all I needed to see was we're big James Nestor fans here at, nice. at, this, at our house where we tape our mouths shut <sighs> every night. <laughs> oh boy like, <laughs> yep that does it means you read it and yep. courtney's like uh i think you know a couple nights ago she's like the tape don't forget the tape and i'm like i think i've had too much to drink i'm just gonna breathe through my mouth tonight she's like no <laughs> no <laughs> i don't want you to die of a heart attack you need to tape your mouth shut <laughs> so i mean oh you've got gosh. great endorsements uh, um and everything your book is beautiful it's a beautiful book and kudos to you thank you yeah. So no, I, I mean, had there's nothing, a, you know, I had nothing to do with how it looks, but uh, yes, the publisher source books has done a wonderful job and I'm yeah. Honored to be with them. I bet. Yeah. So um, where to even begin? I guess I want to ask about um, is, was there a moment? I mean, you write about this in the book, these different things that are happening in your life, but you lived a very urban life and you, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you were, you know, working for big media companies and big tech. Um, do you look back and see one particular pivot point where you're like, no, this is fucking crazy. I need to pull the ripcord on this. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. There were a couple of moments. I would say the first one was when I had my vitamin D level measured after working in an office for two years and, you know, forgetting to get outside, as we do in this culture. Uh, and I had been following because I was a journalist in health before I decided to have full time positions to make more money and help my family out in tech boom San Francisco. Um, before I basically sold out, <laughs> where I was very interested in, uh, you know, things like various health metrics that people could take control of in their own lives and change and then see a big shift in how they were performing and feeling, et cetera. So I got this vitamin D test and it said, your level is at a 20. It should be at a level, you know, 50, 60 or above. 
And I had been primed to be concerned about my health because my mother was sick my entire life. She was diagnosed with MS right after I was born. And so my childhood, teenage years, early 20s was watching her slowly decline because of this disease that we now know much of it has to do with lifestyle and um, some of it has to do with your vitamin D level. So I sort of freaked out and I was like, wow, this lifestyle that I'm living is not healthy, even though all the other um, outward signs of health are there. Like I know that biochemically I'm sort of decaying inside and I need to do something about this first moment. Second moment was, was an encounter with, uh, with nature during the workday. So I was working on Sand Hill Road, which people in California know as the epicenter of venture capital, uh, working for a particular venture capitalist, advising them on content for their startups that they support. And um, this office was super on trend. You probably read about this episode in the book, but you know, nothing was spared. Any snack you wanted, any time of the day, you want a massage, you want this, that. But stay inside, be productive, work late was sort of the message of the place. And I would take walks in their um, landscaped garden around the parking lot there. And one day I spotted a live wild beehive, right? It wasn't in a box <laughs> as most beehives I've ever seen in my life. It was just in an oak tree. And I, I had that spiritual moment. I had that, you know, just complete fixation. Wow, I'm seeing the real thing. This is how honey is made. These bees are going out, they're working together, they're social insects, uh, they have an evolutionary plan that they're following, and their life is beautiful, and they, they're not distressed, they're not stressed out, they're not anxious, I bet their vitamin D is awesome. And I was just like, what? I'm supposed to be like the bee. We're all supposed to be like the bee, like in harmony with each other and with nature. Immediately, right behind me comes the uh, landscaping maintenance worker, pulls up behind me, kind of jolts me out of that spiritual reverie with nature. And uh, kind of, I, I could tell he's like, oh, we better get rid of this. This is a hazard to everybody here. Could, didn't, didn't ever find that wild beehive again. Um, so I'm sure he somehow removed it. But returning to the office, I was like, God, I got to make a life change. <laughs> this is, wow. this is sick. Yeah. I, I don't want to be manipulating biology for tech. I want to just be experiencing pure biology as it was meant to be. Yeah, that's amazing. It's funny because I, um, my kids are a bit old. I don't think you reveal exactly the ages of your daughters in the book, but I, I sense they're younger than my kids. My kids are 23, are. 22, 23, 22, and 18 are my three kids. And my 22-year-old mm -hmm. daughter uh, about a month ago started as a paralegal at a big prestigious law firm on the uh, Middle West side in New York City. And it's mm -hmm. funny because they're, she's like, Dad, they offer breakfast and lunch for free every day because they're trying to get people yeah. to come back to the office, you know? So it's like all the 23-year-old paralegals, second. all the 23-year-old paralegals are like, oh, f two free meals a day in New York City, worth it. And of mm -hmm. course, she's like, all the lawyers are just still at their places in the Hamptons. They're still just zooming into all the oh, meetings. But yeah. Uh, um, <laughs> yeah, it's just funny watching my kids and it'll be interesting to watch them, you know, because for me, I mean, I, I, I didn't have that kind of um, corporate job so much. Right. But the, the, the outdoors life is what 
as I was kind of pushed out of my career as a pastor and theologian, it was the outdoors life that brought me life. And what I thought was interesting is both you and I mean, I don't know how much I can't, I'm no judge of my own book. You know, it's hard to say, but both you and I are almost obsessed with like, what did our ancestors get right? And how can we Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. relearn the stuff that they used to do? Because obviously we're this like Mm -hmm. fantastically successful species. Um, And there's a reason we have been so successful, but then it's like the very things that made us successful are now in so many ways counterproductive to the way we, you know, to, to our existence. And I, you, you write quite often about that in the book. Um, when did you decide to start writing about your experiences of, of this huge life change? Well, first, I, w- I want to address that great question. But also, I oh, think yeah. we need to agree on what we mean by successful. So I think yeah. you, you, you sort of take it as a given when you say that, oh, we're the most successful species. Well, okay, but in what measures? Because when I look around, I'm like, nope, we're totally not a success ecologically. We're not a success yeah. socially these days. We're, <laughs> we're not a success at raising healthy, well-adjusted children. Um, that's getting worse. So sure, yeah. we, we've managed to spread. We've been successful in the population. That's what I mean. Level. I mean, like on but, this kind of evolutionary yeah. way, there's like eight, uh, nearly 8 billion of these large mammals, each of which has yes. to consume three or 4,000 calories a day. And, you know, like we, we have, a, we're extraordinary consumers of energy, calories, et cetera. Yes. And, and mm-hmm. I, so those things that made us successful up till, I don't know what you're going to, where, wherever you're going to draw the line from, it was like good until it became bad. And now I think you and I both <laughs> write in different ways in our books, the, the things that caused our species to, um, to become so dominant are now counterproductive to everything about, you know, the, the way yeah. that we should be living. Exactly. Extinction promoting success here. Yeah. But yeah, so I, um, I had always wanted to write a book. So I have this little piece of paper that dates back to what, 1989, on which I state my career goals from when I was 10 or 11 years old. And it says, I want to be a writer. And I want to have two kids. Um, I just love that, that like, oh, my God, myself at, at age 10 knew more than I did at, you know, 30 years later sometimes. But so it was always, you know, my, my dad had written books. My grandfather was an academic. It was kind of in the DNA of this Jewish family that I would eventually write a book one day. And so I had always been searching for the topic. I didn't want to write something trivial. I didn't want to write something trendy. I wanted to write a book that would be evergreen. And uh, ultimately, it drew upon my background in anthropology, my training in field research and using the methods of participant observation. So going out and spending time with community and completely involving myself intellectually and physically in their beliefs and their systems and their practices. So I learned all sorts of wild skills. Um, but yeah, so this, the writing started probably in 2017. So it's been a very long journey. Um, I did. I was, I was a dropout out of a couple of PhD programs. So now I'm like, okay, I did, 
I did sort of like a dissertation. It feels like I yeah, kind of earned sure. my cred there with academia. But um, and I know you completed one. But I have that inner academic in me wanted to write a book that would uh, shake people up, right? So the, the foundations of this is sort of to question everything about our modern civilization and ask for the sake of asking, is this really what we should be doing? And is there a better way? And then looking at um, the longevity of human survival on this planet and realizing that for 96 to 99 percent of it, we were living as hunter-gatherers, as wild foragers in nomadic groups, uh, very small <laughs> groups, not encountering thousands of strangers like we do every day now in cities. And, uh, and just seeing that that sort of proves itself out as a proof of concept. If you've got 300,000 years of living in a certain way that doesn't lead to extinction, like you're saying, we should look at that again. And we should figure out if there are aspects of that lifestyle that we can adopt. And so I went and found folks who are kind of reviving paleolithic skills, um, you know, living completely off of nature for long periods of time, if not all the time. They're modern day folks who grew up in cities like me, and they just needed this radical change. So went out, learned with them, and then also tried to start modifying my own life. Still in process. <laughs> well, okay, so this, re this rewilding thing, which was really foreign to me, I mean, I'm sure I'd read, you know, uh, some New York Times story on it where they have to, you know, do a little nod toward, oh, there's this thing happening out in the woods this weekend and so they send some reporter out and um, it's kind of like going to see animals in a zoo or something. But obviously you did it right. it's, yeah. much differently. As you say, very immersive. Um, a lot mm -hmm. of my listeners will probably be familiar with uh, A.J. Jacobs who has a, a blurb right on the front of your book for immersing himself in like the Old Testament for a year and um right oh I know I, I work. yeah yeah so you're doing this immersive journalism and this is really one of the things I loved about your book is uh it's really honest it's it's honest from mm. everything from like these like uh mountain men that you kind of have crushes on to mm -hmm. how some of the stuff is kind of gimmicky and others people are really very earnest about it. Um, I'm sure it's the, this case with, you know, if, if, you, if you immersed yourself in people who were like really into Renaissance fairs or reenacting mm, the Civil War mm -hmm. or something like that, um, did you sometimes feel like it was? Some of these people are kind of play acting like Civil War reenactors. And how do you mm. suss out that from the people who are really like... No, I, I need, this is like, I need to do this stuff to save my own life and my own soul. Right. Well, I discuss this phenomenon of primitive skills gatherings. Sometimes they're called ancestral skills gatherings. If folks are not into that word primitive, um, just a little side note, I'd, I'm not offended by it. I think it just means primary, <laughs> getting back to basics, mm -hmm. but okay. You know the climate we live in these days. So, um, yes, so I was going indeed. to these gatherings and just I was fascinated by the demographics there because you'd have folks who were urban tech but just had a yearning for getting away and learning ancient skills just for the fun of it. Like, oh, isn't this cool? I can tan a hide and make a buckskin laptop case or whatever. And then there are hardcore preppers and people who, you know, maybe they're stockpiling ammunition and tons of food in case there's end of times. 
Uh, but they also realize that all of those supplies will not last forever. And so if there is a societal collapse, they want to know how to hunt and gather and make their own stuff. They're there too with deep reasons for being there. Um, then there's, you know, just homeschool kids whose parents are really into having them just be outside all the time because we're knowing, we're, we're figuring out that that's a lot healthier. Um, so just a wide variety, left and right, religious folks, Mormons, Christians, Jews, um, absolutely secular folks, pagan folks. I mean, a real hodgepodge cross-section of um, subcultures in America. Not that diverse racially, um, somewhat diverse economically, but I was, yeah, I was fascinated by um, all these folks there. Now I'm forgetting your original question. What folks do you want me to focus on with this? Well, I guess, into the, I mean, you're, you're pointing oh, to it. this like, in them? How oh, did these, yes. yeah, and how did all these different uh that's that's very diverse motivations for people. You know, you, you you're very journalistic, and you're like, I put my girls like you got this camper and hooked it up to the trailer and like drove to this thing and met these people. But what a when you walked in, did you like how does this thing even work? And uh, and and uh-huh, are people uh-huh. are like I said, the the diverse motivations for people being there. How do they all mix? Right. And are they cosplay? Like you're saying? Is yes. This just like, yeah. Oh, are they play? Fair. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I would say, yes, yeah, some of them are. And there's definitely kind of like a prestige accrued to the dirtiest buckskin person there, right? With the dreadlocks <laughs> okay. and maybe they're running a few goats behind them barefoot. You can tell they haven't bathed. That's a thing. And, you know, all respect to everybody. I, I, I mean, I'm just... I. I love these folks because they're <laughs> they're critiquing how we're living and they're trying to f- sort out their own way. But um, for the most part, it's it's a genuine deep connection with nature. A lot of folks get funneled to these gatherings because they have done some sort of wilderness or naturalist education and they want to take it a step further. So it's one thing to learn the native plants in your area and the pollinators and the tree species and what happens throughout the seasons from the groomed trail right? That is one thing. That's a great thing to do, but you can take your nature connection much, much, much deeper. Um, then people, right. The outdoor industry is full of that overnight backpack camping, etc. Mm-hmm. But then there's a way to not bring your industrial life support system with you every time you do that. So then how do you get ready for living in nature only with natural materials? And so that's what people come to these primitive skills gatherings to learn is how do we completely delink ourselves from these centralized industrial consumer systems, everything from food to the shoes you're wearing, um, even to the communication methods you're using. Like they're pretty much banned phones at these places. They're trying mm-hmm. to mimic like an early, early human village over the week. And it's, it's a real, yes, kind of back in time visiting the historical museum experience. But once you hear the scientific basis for why this is good for us, like, I don't think people go to a Renaissance fair thinking, okay, this is great for my health and right, um, right, I'm, right. I'm going to learn what it means to be truly human and I'm going to connect with all generations of my ancestors. So there's a lot of deep sort of scientifically based, uh, spiritually based motivations for these folks, which makes it less of just a display and less of a burning man in the woods type festival. Yeah, that's it's interesting you talk about the science because I I've been to some stuff um more religious kind of people who are trying to live like a more primitive religious type uh mm-hmm. experience or whatever and I've gone to drum circles and 
And I get very skeptical as somebody who's, you know, spent my adult life studying religion because we know very, very little about primordial religion. We know almost nothing, frankly. I mean, there's archaeological evidence of some structures. Like I'm my my spouse and I are going to Malta um, in mm. September, and it's got the second oldest freestanding religious structure in the world, as far as mm. as far as archaeologists can tell. And they have mm-hmm. no freaking clue what it was, <laughs> what what religion right. was practiced there, what their people believed, you know, anything about it. So was there, did, did you ever get skeptical? Like, do you, are, are we making some of this stuff up? Or I mean, it's a little bit different, I guess, if you're like figuring out how to make an arrowhead, you know, or whatever, or sharpen a yeah. stone so that you can scrape a hide or use a brain uh, to tan it. Um, yeah. Tell me about that. Okay. So, well, I would be really curious to know if you know how old that oldest structure is, because my guess is that it's not actually that old in the, the time periods that I'm talking about. Because I think it's, you, well, no, no, it's, you're right. It's not a hundred thousand yeah. years old, not a chance. Yeah. So when you're talking about any kind of institutionalized, centralized system that, that has the manpower and capacity to organize something like building a temple, whether we know what it's for or not, I would venture yeah. to say those are not necessarily hunting and gathering people, that right. they have begun the process of sedentarization and farming, which puts them at ten to 12,000 years ago at the oldest. So yeah. when I'm talking about ancient human history, um, we we're going back to the Pleistocene era, which is anything before 12,000 years ago. We're talking about um, immediate return hunting and gathering societies. And you say we, we know almost nothing about them. I think you're referring to we know almost nothing about those early civilizational religions. But That's right. That's know, what I'm saying. In my field, we know very little about. Yeah. yeah uh, right. Yeah. Exactly. No, and I think that's definitely true. So I just want to clarify the time periods that we're talking about because okay. we do know because you can make assumptions, whether they're loose and there's a little bit of historical slippage here. But when you study existing hunter-gatherer communities like the San Bushmen in the Kalahari Desert, like the Hadza in uh, Tanzania all sorts of um, Amazonian existing indigenous groups that pretty much have not adopted anything from industrial society, we can see what their spiritual beliefs are. And knowing that their genome kind of places them in those places, so with, the, with the San in particular, we know their genome goes back 50,000 years, like very much unchanged. So you can kind of speculate that as a property of their survival, their cultural ways have remained pretty consistent. And so you can look at like, okay. well, how are they connecting to the spirit world? And, um, and we can then pretty much say that's how ancient humans were acting. And what we find is animism. We find yeah. that within those belief systems, every living being, even the rocks, actually anything in your environment has a spirit and you can connect with it. And we have evidence that, um, you know, there are some perceptual and telepathic and spiritual abilities of these people who still live with a traditional hunting and gathering lifestyle that we have lost. 
that we find mm. preposterous. Well, you can't talk to somebody who's not in the same vicinity as you. Oh, no, no, no. I can talk to him. He's two miles away. I, I told him to bring the thing for hunting tomorrow, and he showed up on time when I mind <laughs> connected with him. I mean, it's really crazy. It's, it's wonderful. And you wonder, yeah. like, well, how are they able to track these animals that the, the wind shifted and all the tracks disappeared from the sand? They are literally following these, like, invisible strings that are per perceivable to them. I mean, so it, it's, a, it's a wild world of spiritual interconnectivity from what we understand from anthropologists documenting how these people talk about what they believe. Um, mm -hmm. So for me, as an anthropologist schooled in this field, practicing it myself, I don't doubt those accounts necessarily, especially if they've been you know, reproduced over many locales with many different studies, you know, one done in 1890, one done in 1950, they're saying the same thing. Um, and, and from my own personal experience of like, the more time I spend in nature, the more nature talks to me, the more yeah. animals stop and just look at me and want to connect. Uh, the more like when I'm going out foraging, I become sensitive to what plants I feel I should take in the moment who are beckoning me to harvest them and ones who are like, nope, stay away. So, so having that own experience with animism, which is nothing like, I'm not saying I'm indigenized or anything. Like I'm not making any leaps here that are uh, preposterous or culturally appropriating, but just like, I, I, you know, this stuff is real. You've had encounters with animals where you feel like there's yeah. some sort of presence there. I'm sure. Yeah. 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 I, I want to stick with this religious thing because um, uh, you write in your book, um, as I encountered rewilding ideas, Judaism didn't sit well with my changing consciousness. Uh, I had never approved of the inequality between the sexes that Jewish life promote, promoted in its original farm. The lifestyle of an observant Jew follows also didn't feel that healthy to me. In fact, it worked against my instincts. So this is this is interesting to me, of course, as a as a scholar of religion, that you address this. Um, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about growing up and and choosing in your young adulthood to be an observant Jew and raise your daughters like that, but then move away from that as this rewilding part of your life uh, became more prominent. Yes. Well, I would say my pull towards Judaism was almost a similar thing in that I felt called by an ancestral wisdom and it felt disrespectful to me. I was uh, not actually born Jewish because technically my mother was not Jewish. My father is. And so according to Jewish law, if you're not born to a Jewish mother, you're not Jewish and you need to convert and study and, you know, prepare yourself. And this is, it's an interesting biological reason, right? Because you can never be sure who the dad is. You can always be sure who the mom is. So Judaism follows through that line. And, uh, and I decided like, I, you know, deep thinker thinking about cultures and ancestry in a moment in time in the late nineties, when it was just sort of starting to come to fore that like, there are many different identities besides your kind of regular suburban white Christian American. And I was very influenced by like, Hey, wait, that isn't me. I have this other ancestry that stretches back at least 5,000 years. It would be a little bit disrespectful not to look into that not to understand that that formed their survival, you know, and of course everybody talks about the Jews and survival. So that was very appealing to me. Um, 
that, you know, this lifestyle, this way of belief and way of uh, ethically treating animals and each other and the land had survived for that long and that it was what made up half of my DNA. So I got really into Jewish stuff, went and lived in Israel, had a fellowship, learned Hebrew, even took on this um, ancient art form. I became a ketubah artist for a while. So ketubahs are the documents that Jewish brides and grooms sign at the beginning of a Jewish wedding. It's a tradition that goes back 2,500 years that um, protects the woman in case of divorce. And they're elaborately decorated. And so I got threw myself into that art form um, and made those for all sorts of Jewish couples and just felt very fulfilled by this tradition, history, people, culture, um, new language, you know, learning about the Middle East. So it it was a really fascinating, wonderful time for me. And I felt very spiritually connected to it. Um, but then, like I say in the book, it, it just, I, I didn't understand what came before that 5,000 years. And so I, I still respect that, you know, that, that is my ancestry, but I'm going even deeper with my ancestral pull now. Right. And like, well, before the Jews entered civilization, before they were farmers, before they were people of the book, there weren't even written words. What were we? Well, we had to have been hunter-gatherers, just like everybody else who lives on this planet who now has a different culture, a different religion. We were all one thing at this point in time over 12,000 years ago. And to me, that was so deeply compelling. Um, And the ways that we've diverged from that original evolutionary lifestyle, we can see that they are leading to so much um, ill health and social malaise and depression, anxiety, stress, all the things, consumerism. So, um, so it's not that I'm rejecting it. I'm sort of incorporating it and like going further back to the the point in time where I, my people were hunter gatherers. Do you get frustrated about the silence or the haze, the, the historical haze from before the written word? Do you, I mean, do you get, as somebody who's trying to quest after Mm. this type of, primitive life are you like dang i i wish i could know more or there's only so much i can do does that ever feel like some kind of blockage or make it difficult yeah i think it certainly does that's a really perceptive question i haven't thought about it in those terms because right when you engage with the science of ancient cultures the the science of understanding them it's genetics so we can you know, the genome can speak to us from those ancient periods. Um, and also these contemporary hunter-gatherer communities can also sort of fill in a little bit for what life might have been like before. So there are ways of translating that aren't direct. Um, so I wouldn't say I'm that frustrated because there are these sources of information, whether you trust them or not, that's another thing. But should you trust in them, we can glean um, certainly more than we could have 50 years ago before mm. Mm. the revolution in genetics and understanding how the genome has changed and how human populations migrated, uh, which, which tells a huge story. So, so I think the storytelling aspects, you know, it's, it's there. It's just, we have to work harder to get the stories. Yeah. I, I, I here's one thing that I thought that, I mean, it's going to verge on a political question that occurred to me when I was <laughs> reading your book, because I mean, you know, I, from reading my book, you you know that I lived on a Native American reservation in South Dakota for a while. Mm -hmm. And um, you, of course, talk about 
Native Americans and some of their ways and some of the people you learned from who are Native uh, in your rewilding journey. Um, But in other ways, because of the time periods you're talking about, you can almost be like, no, you guys, I don't need to defer to Native American wisdom because I'm going back like even before that. I'm going back before... Mm -hmm. Native Americans were riding horses on this continent or before those particular people crossed the Bering Strait. So, but there's a lot of pressure among those of us who are interested in um, historical ways of being to defer Mm -hmm. to Native, the Native ways. And having lived on the reservation, I'm ambivalent about that because... In some ways, you know, unfortunately, the, the reservation I lived on, and I think this this way in a lot of reservations, they eat very poorly. You know, they, they're not... The, some of the very things I'm trying to do to change and then to even evangelize about, about like hunting, gathering, um, and, and trying to move away from industrialized meat and um, genetically modified crops and stuff like that, that's not even a co- topic of conversation on among mm. the native people I know. They're just yep. really trying to get by, frankly. Yep. So I just wonder, did you ever bump into that? Like, yeah, yeah, I appreciate native, the native ways, but I'm talking about like, <laughs> you're talking about something that was happening 1,500 years ago, and I'm talking about something that was happening 150,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, another amazing question. Definitely a through line in the book is me trying to uh, thread the needle of contemporary indigenous and native struggle and the fact that all humans do share this ancient lifestyle. Um, Some ways that I learned to find my path were that I sort of, you know, through working with native artisans um, and learning from native people in Northern California and across the Pacific Northwest, you know, that is only one area of the country. There's so many other traditions. So just want to be clear where I learned stuff. But, um, you know, and there is sort of this like nationalization of the Lakota where everybody just sort of when they think Native American, they think Lakota. But there's such a huge diversity of Native American traditions and cultures. And actually, one of the diversity hotspots is California because of its environment and incredible abundant food. Like the, the diversity of languages in this state was more than any other place. So anyway, um, some ways I found my way through that were that the, the issue of cultural appropriation is huge and it is harmful, even if it's just symbolic. So there are reasons that Native communities are upset with an Indian chief being a sports mascot or with a stream being named squaw, which with some cultures is a derogatory term. There are many of these symbolic battles going on. But none of these symbolic battles are being fought over the basic human survival skills. So nobody's upset if I, could, if I go out and build a shelter of my own design from, uh, you know, in the woods, whether it's BLM or public land or something. Nobody's upset about that. I'm not appropriating any culture. I'm just being a human looking for shelter. Nobody's upset mm. if I go pick some berries to feed me and my kids. Uh, nobody's upset if I need to find water so when you, you know, or, or make a fire. So we've got those four basic survival skills of fire making, water, food, and shelter. I tried to stick with that to avoid the political yeah. uh, minefield. Like, you, you just can't criticize that. I need these things to survive. 
when it gets to art, ritual, religion, um, customs, any kind of religious festival, uh, any kind of dress or accoutrement or, you know, regalia, those seem to all be in the realm of uh, possible appropriation. And so whenever I engaged something that was in that level of culture, then I was never disrespecting it, never taking it out of its context. I would learn from the traditional artisan. So I was taught how to make um, Squamish cedar hats from a, an artisan who lives in British Columbia. And I talk about this in the book. And she taught us the traditional method, but we used a modern form of hat to make it. So it was sort of this hybrid thing. But learning from, from somebody who had learned it from her ancestors who had been on that land for thousands and thousands of years. And then I understood that somebody who had taken her class had been creating these hats and selling them on Etsy after she had learned from the native artisan. And there was a very clear message from this, this teacher, do not do that. This is not for you to profit from. This is for your spiritual development, for your artisanal enjoyment, right? To learn this skill. So just it, everything kind of became, became more clear to me about these struggles when I realized like, okay, there's some things that clearly belong to these cultures and that they need um, sovereignty with. Uh, but there are other things that we all share that I can engage in without, without feeling any kind of guilt or like I'm appropriating. And then all that said, indigenous land rights are real. Uh, I am a settler colonialist benefiting from the fact that land was taken away from the Miwok people who lived in the Sierra foothills. However, that's also a little bit contested because, um, those traditional cultures did not have the same idea of property, did not have boundary lines, um, didn't have rights, right? Like our entire Western conception of land is totally different from what was here before. So it's not as simple to say, oh, it was their land and I took it and I didn't take it. It was people 150 years ago. Um, but so these things get really messy. I <laughs> wanted to avoid the mess while respecting everybody that I came into contact with um, and supporting their struggle for land rights, you know, doing whatever I can to help them while also pushing my own agenda and the agenda of the kind of rewilding community, which is that if you are continuing to live in a dependent, industrialized, commodified, consumer-based lifestyle, you, we're all getting further away from where we need to go and from what our ancestry practiced. So uh, there's a character in the book, I don't know if you made it this far, his name is Jamie, and he worked mm -hmm. with indigenous folks in Alaska and was coming up against this uh, really difficult issue where hunting rights in, uh, for native communities, right? They make special allowances so that they can hunt with traditional methods. Uh, because what happens is, is, as you very well know, in a competitive hunting arena, the people who can get out there the fastest with the ATVs who have, you know, the, fast, the, the best quality guns, they're going to take home more animals. So they wanted to kind of even the playing field so that people who wanted to use traditional methods could also be competitive in the hunt. Um, and so Jamie talks to the folks from indigenous communities who, you know, their ancestry there goes back thousands of years. And the young folks are totally in favor of using the new methods, which it require fossil fuels, uh, require having a job to buy the commodity of a gun, which then entraps you in the system. Whereas the older folks, the elder generation who had seen and practiced the traditional hunting methods and then saw how dependent their communities were becoming on this globalized system, 
were against it and they wanted to retain the traditional methods. So it's incredibly complex. It's, it's, uh, you know, and it's hard for an outsider to come in and tell that community what they should do. Right. Right. <laughs> but clearly you have the young people who are wanting comfort and convenience and a faster ability to get around on the land. Whereas the elders are seeing the, the detriments of that lifestyle. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's very hard. And I'm sure you witnessed a lot of that. Well, that's uh, no, that's a great answer. And it gives me some insight into the way that you approached it in, in the book. Um, because you did, you were, yeah, you were able to write in a way that wasn't, I, I did just sometimes think like if I were in the rewilding movement, I would say to a native American, like you don't have a Trump card on me because my people were also hunter gatherers. If you go back that far, you know, if you go back far enough, we were all, all our people were doing yeah. the same thing. And, um, okay. Mm -hmm. Yes. I read the whole thing. And cause yes, I read about Jamie Yay! because I thought, I thought Jamie might be the guy you end up with at some right? point. I'm like, Oh, she's going to end up with Jamie. <laughs> okay. So this is a good segue because, um, you talk really openly about, you write really openly about, your marriage at the beginning of the journey, you're happily married and you're speaking very, you know, favorably about your spouse. And then you kind of leave some little breadcrumbs that th things are not so great. Mm -hmm. And it's, a, you know, and then mm -hmm. by the end you guys split up and you're with somebody else. Um, and here's how I want to frame this question. You know, I'm I'm friends with a lot of people who grew up. I didn't, but a lot of people I know uh, grew up in very conservative Christian environments. Went to Christian college. Maybe they were homeschooled, and they went to Christian college, and they had these very dogmatic, you know, conservative evangelical beliefs. And mm -hmm. often they they start this journey of what people now are referring to as deconstruction, um, yes. and they start to question those evangelical beliefs and et cetera, et cetera. That can play havoc on a marriage. And a lot of times marriages don't survive because the other spouse is like, no, I love going to church and I still believe mm. the Bible is the inerrant word of God. And I want to raise our kids that way. And the other spouse is like, how can you believe that? That's crazy. Like we, the scales have fallen from my eyes, you know? And mm. I wonder if your was a similar thing. Now it sounds like yours was, you know, fairly amicable and whatever. And, mm -hmm. yeah. um, but I wonder about that journey. If you're just like, I'm a different person now than when we yeah. got married. And if your spouse is like, that's not what I signed up for. I'm an attorney in San Francisco. Like I'm not going to go live in the woods. And yeah, yeah I, I just thought as a journalist, that was very honest of you because a lot of journalists avoid that kind of personal writing in their, in their work. Yeah, absolutely. I and I have to say the first drafts of the book were not talking about that. We're not vulnerable and I was encouraged by editor after editor to put more of myself in the story. And then when Good. I would give friends the draft, they'd say, "Oh, your personal story is what I really wanted to read about. Who cares about all the research?" Yeah. So then I was like, "Okay, I need <laughs> even more." So there and I'm an introvert and I like to keep a private life. So this has for me been a huge area of growth to be willing to say my own story in public like this. And um yeah, so <laughs> thanks for noticing. Um 
<laughs> definitely, definitely a difficult period of my life. And I love that comparison with a religious couple because that really is what it was. You totally got it. It was like he, we both were inculcated, grew up in the religion of civilization, modern life, believing that it was good, that it was headed somewhere positive, uh, that all of our technological progress would deliver us to a better life. And then I just didn't believe that anymore. And he hmm. didn't have that same process of reconciliation or deconstruction, as you said. So it was, and I, I try to draw that to make the comparison kind of stark. Like I would talk about how I would bring home foraged greens for our salad for dinner and offer them to him. And he'd be like, no, I don't want that. And he would eat the triple washed spinach from Trader Joe's. Um, yeah, that's a, I mean, know, that scene I, like that, when you write that, <laughs> That's so, um, that's such a vivid little detail. Uh, you can just see yeah. that clamshell yeah. that says triple washed spinach, you uh -huh. know, um, <laughs> the case from Trader Joe's. We've all bought it. And I was like there in your kitchen in, your kitchen. in that nice. scene. And I'm like, I get it. I, I mean, it's happened to me so many times when I've served wild game to people, you know, mm -hmm. they're like, I don't know right. if I can do this. And then I'm like, well, I don't know if you can eat at my house then. <laughs> yeah, I know. No, I, fe I fed venison to folks like my roadkill, right? And I tell them what it is, but then they'll say all these crazy things afterwards. Like, well, actually it's not bad. It's like, well, this is only the freshest, most organic, wild source of protein you can get. So yeah, it tastes pretty good. <laughs> You're yeah, surprised. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, getting back to that contrast, it was like I was going through this process of questioning every industrial good in my life and trying to replace it with stuff I could find. Um, and it, it all seemed so obvious to me. I was like, why would we put the aloe vera lotion from the pharmacy that we paid 16 bucks for on our kids sunburn. We have aloe outside and it, it, just to these clashes. And that's kind of a trivial one. Like it was deeper. It was like, I think we should homeschool the kids. Like I don't want them in this institutionalized system, teaching them all this, you know, worship government garbage. I, I was really out there going on and you know, my kids still aren't homeschooled. We're still kind of fighting over that. Um, while getting along very well, you're right. It was, it is amicable at this point, but he, lives a lifestyle for the city and I'm now out here in the foothills and trying to be wild as much as I can. Um, so I think it's a good, it's a good contrast for my children. I hope it doesn't make them too bipolar. Um, but they're getting a taste of how to, how to survive on screens and in, um, corporate structures. And they're also getting, how do I find water and make sure I'm safe at night in the woods for me? Uh, and plenty of other stuff. Like I, I haven't completely eschewed the modern lifestyle, like my daughter was asking me to take her to the Barbie movie the other day. So we still do a lot of fun stuff in culture. Yeah. I just really try to balance it out. Yeah. Tell me, let's talk about the, the, your kids. I mean, do you, do you have like, at some point they're gonna be like, my mom's a hippie and you know, they're going to check out <laughs> from your lifestyle. And is this a worry of yours? Like, how has it gone? So have there been crisis moments with them where they're like, I don't want to be this uncomfortable. All my friends are so comfortable. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think this is one of the biggest things about living in yeah. more outdoors lifestyle is there's a lot, there's a lot of physical discomfort and there is nothing in part of our lives, our industrialized modern lives that says like embrace discomfort. It's all like, no, turn the air conditioning on, you know, like, 
Start your car in the winter and let it warm up before you get in it. You wouldn't want to be cold when you get in your car, you know, stuff like that. So do tell me about parenting it, it yeah. parenting against the the this this overwhelming narrative of how comfortable we should be. Right. And how much plastic we should use and how much sugar we should consume. Oh my god, I the mean, plastic. That, oh. The plastic. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Tony, you know, you are probably a more appropriate person to ask about that because I mean I will talk about it, but <laughs> the things you've done with your children and the harrowing events you've taken them through that I read in your book. Uh, crazy boat journeys at night, getting into storms, not sure where you're going, no technology with you. Yeah. Amazing. And I totally agree with you, your viewpoint that like kids need these challenging experiences, uh, whether they like them or not. I mean, I, I'm not into forcing my kids to do something, but I'm not above it. <laughs> so if they're tired, cranky, don't want to walk, I, you know, outdoor time is non-negotiable. We have to get outside. You've got to exercise mm-hmm. every day. You have to see the sun. So um, sometimes what that looks like, honestly, is that I pull the internet router out of the wall. I plug it wow. into a battery pack that's solar powered. <laughs> and I set up an area for the kids to quote unquote work outside. And I've done that so many times. And it's just mm. like, okay, this is the compromise we're making for today. But um you know, the, and it is, it's lovely to be outside in the shade, no matter what the temperature is. So, so we're going to keep doing that. If they're going to insist on uh, having a life online, how dare they? But, um, we, you know, part of our routine is, is to harvest wild food. So we're whatever season it is, I make sure they're with me and we're smashing acorns and we're collecting the blackberries. We're digging up roots. My kids, um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say they're hundred percent into this lifestyle and they do reject it a lot, but especially my older daughter, she'll find plants that I don't even know. And she'll say, Oh, you know, we can eat the root of this one. It's edible. And then she'll go out and harvest it and Hmm. cook it up for us like some kind of wild garlic. Um, so they have, they found the wonder, which is so essential. The kids need to tap into their own passion and not just inherit it from mom or be told that it's good to do. Mm -hmm. They have to find their own thing that they want to be doing outside their own adventure. Um, and I have scared them several times. I've taken them down to the Kasumnas River Gorge where there's pretty hazardous conditions walking on rocks above the roiling rapids. Um, I felt perfectly safe, but I knew it would have that edge of danger for them. So just to be with them through their fear as they conquered the, you know, traversing this difficult area and then rewarding them with a bunch of Oreos at the end. I mean, it's experiences like that that they will remember and that they definitely yeah. are growing from. Yeah. And that for me, it makes me feel like, okay, I'm getting closer to being that badass mom I want to be. <laughs> you know, like, because I want to have these strong, um, capable, like survival oriented, self sufficient girls. And I think it's hard to do that while they're living in the city. Um, so I just so I just try to chip away at it every time I'm with them, and I have half time custody, so I see them fifty percent of the time. Um, okay. So we we just we just fit it in. Um, well, that leads to my next question. Actually, this this you, you've used the word compromise a couple times. There's um, there's there there's a religious idea called a rule of life that goes back to St. Benedict in the, the, you know, the first um, monastic community in the West. Um, 
And and it's kind of like how can you in in his rule of life he lays out the day a day in the life of a monk because he's like, well, you can't pray 24 hours a day. You also have to sleep and you have to work and you have to peel potatoes and you have to clean the dishes, you know, and it's, so it's like here's how you do it all. Even though you you guys mm-hmm. would like to just pray all the time, you can't just pray all the time. And I wonder <laughs> um for you these decisions cuz I'm I I can hear the potential criticism of like, "Oh, you're so wild, but here you are." talking to a podcaster on an app on your computer with your earbuds in and what, you know, you drive a car to pick up your kids for your halftime custody or whatever. And I don't really, I mean, I think that's a kind of a ridiculous criticism, but you are, it seems to me in this daily, um, you're, you're daily making decisions. It's an ad hoc thing you're doing every day of like how much life wild, how much life civilized. Um, Where do I get Mm. this food or my kid is sick. Do I treat it with an herb or do we go to the pharmacy? Like how do you, do you have some kind Mm -hmm. of overarching Mm -hmm. rule of life so that then when these specific ad hoc decisions come up, you have kind of like a, a, a guidepost or a framework for that? Yeah, what a wonderful question. And I would say that won't really be a powerful criticism of me because that's the criticism I make of myself all the time. And uh, and I just, you know, I've just come to peace with it. Like, yeah, I can't live as wild as I want to right now um, because it would mean forfeiting social relationships. And as I have learned more about what it meant to be an ancient human and in a hunter-gatherer tribal band – your social ties are actually one of your, that is a primary need. You can die of social exclusion. You can die of isolation. And we're seeing that yeah. in our society. I mean, that's what the lockdowns did to yeah. people and what our increasing, you know, nuclearization of the family does to people. So, and, as, and, I, and deaths, I was inspired by other rewilders. Yeah. Yeah. No, and you see it in um, primate communities, right? So if if a mother and child are ostracized for whatever reason, they're probably not going to make it. They're not going to be – the food Mm. won't be shared with them. They won't be protected. So social isolation is fundamental survival concern. And so I choose to make that number one, right? Like I'm not going to cut off from family, friends, my partner, whatever. And then after that, uh, whatever I can do wild, I want to do – And then I've developed routines. So it's not necessarily ad hoc. It's like, I'm definitely going to go out every day on a kind of foraging wander. Maybe I'll trespass a little bit onto public land. Maybe I'll go through this ditch. I love to get off trail. But I do that every day. And I try to get some wild food while I'm out there. And summer is an amazing time to do that. Spring is an amazing time to do that. So I got that routine in where I know I'm going to get the wild food. I know I'm going to have the outdoor time. Um, And then, you know, I'm sort of slowly still acquiring the skills that I talk about in the book. And so I just try to make sure I'm keeping up with uh, practicing my fire making skills, making sure that on camping trips, I take minimal gear. So it's, it's sort of, it is woven into my life. It's not as much of a question anymore. Um, But developing these routines was an experimental time in my life. And, And so that's what a lot of the middle part of the book is about is like, how did I learn how to integrate wild stuff? Um, and then, yeah, and I'm trying to build on it and make my life wilder and wilder, but I don't think it's going to happen until I am, you know, an empty nester. 
So yeah. So so I'm dreaming big, and I also think you know it is it's really hard for anybody who's grown up in this culture, in this society with all of these uh, technological dependencies to unhook from it because I don't have a tribe to go to, <laughs> right? Like anybody born into a traditional mm. family. They're not going to have to recreate everything from scratch like I'm having to right now and like a lot of the rewilders are. They're born into it. There's already a baby cradle made of willow. There's already, you know, um, people ready to teach them how to hunt and how to gather. There's a lively storytelling culture around the fire every night. It's like, but no, I have to kind of now try to motivate that to happen with people I know who didn't grow up in that way, who don't have the social skills to kind of band together and stay loyal uh, the way that a tribe would have needed to. So we're really flailing. We're kind of orphans in terms of this ancestral lifestyle. So I try not to beat myself up about it too much. Um, but I think that understanding the wild way of thinking and that there are alternatives to everything that we consume, that is the most valuable lesson. It's empowering personally. You know, you feel really badass when you start your first fire from just wood. You feel really awesome when you get your first, uh, you know, quarry and you harvest that yourself and you tan the hide. I mean, all of that is personally satisfying, regardless of what happens in the rest of the world. Um, so, so that's what I try to focus on too, is like just the personal satisfaction, the health benefits, the social benefits, uh, of becoming more wild. Yeah. I mean, the, the social aspect of it, of, of, primitive societies comes through very strongly in your book. And I mean, another thing that's interesting that you mentioned in the book, I th and I've, I've actually read a couple uh, like um, academic journal articles about this, that um, those early societies, like people probably worked about two hours a day and then mm -hmm. they pretty much... Mm -hmm. Hung, sat around and like took naps and talked to each other and a lot of joking, very mischievous, you know, playing tricks on each other. And that was very much more, like nobody worked eight hours a day um, when you were, you know, tanning no. a buffalo hide or whatever. Uh, there was much more leisure involved in people's lives than we have now. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if you yeah. want to comment on that. Well, just to say the original source for that is this guy, Marshall Sollins, anthropologist in the 60s, who wrote an essay kind of about the San Bushmen and these African groups um, called The Original Affluent Society, showing yeah. that, yeah, they weren't rich in material goods and they had no system of exchange like money, but they had leisure time, they had play, they had romance, they had food, they had all the things you need for a robust, happy life. And we're kind of lacking in that, but yet we work so much. Um, and, and all our working in the original conception of industrial society was supposed to liberate us. All these machines were supposed mm. to give us more leisure time. And we all know we're just working more. So, I, I, yeah, I think it's really important. And then, you know, just the diversity angle. Sure, some groups would, quote unquote, work two hours a day. Uh, some others, it depends on the climate that you're in. The ecology could be six hours. And then the whole idea sure. of work is a little absurd, too, because... Their yeah. life, they, their, their, their uh, subsistence is how they live. This is hard to conceptualize. Okay, is digging some roots work when it's fun and you're doing it with friends? I don't know. Um, okay, last serious question and then a fun question. Because uh, this, this is another, I, I don't really get into this in my book, but I, it's something that 
I think you and I agree on. I mean, you you tat you you tackle it much more uh, uh, straight ahead than I do. But I tell my kids all the time. Look, don't assume this this whole thing we're living in right now. Don't assume like this is eternal. What I mean is like the internet, the electrical grid, like uh, plumbing that brings clean water into your house, a functioning government. Mm-hmm. I don't. I'm. I'm no like. I'm not a prepper really, and I'm not a conspiracy theorist. But I also, um, I am an historian, and I know that human societies thrive until they don't and then they collapse and then there's crisis and apocalypse and then something new society government comes out of the ashes of the old and um i appreciated that you write about this you know that um Mm. part of part of the benefit of of extracting yourself from the industrialized, commercialized, plastic uh, promoting world that we live in is because these all these things might not be available and you want to be one of the people who knows what to do when they're not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's I love that you said that, that uh, absolutely. If we just look historically without bias, you see that every single civilization has a rise and fall. And what you left out was that in between those times of civilizations rising and falling, what people do is they revert to a foraging lifestyle. They go Mm. back to living completely off of nature or partially off of nature, or they adopt some horticulture, but they're hunting and they're building their structures out of local materials. So that to me was one of the most compelling insights that I found in my research and really wanted to emphasize in the book is like, This is the way we get through a collapse to the next thing, should there be a next thing. And this lifestyle is rewarding in itself. Um, Mm. The you know, a lot of the survival skills and television shows about that, that sort of romanticize it. There's still this lifeline of civilization. Like if we could just survive on the island in the Arctic for 73 days, then we can get back to civilization. Yeah. Instead of and get your million dollars, just lived and, out there. Yeah, yeah. Get your million right. dollars. That's a loan. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, so to kind of yeah, flipping the script there. That like yeah, our civilization will collapse. We don't know when it's going to happen. Hopefully not in our lifetime, but hell, it could come anytime. And yep. I want to be ready for it. Uh, I know that that's how previous you know that's how we've gotten through those times in the past. For so it's the only proven way for our species to live uh, sustainably. And then it's fun and it's badass. And that's fun to be engaged with. Yeah, yeah. I mean, my kids, uh, I'm like, look, I'm not trying to freak you out, but I'll tell you where I'm going to be. Like when when the world collapses, I'll be, I'll drive straight up to our place up north. And, you know, there's deer, there's squirrels, there's mushrooms, there's water in the lake like we'll figure it out meet meet me there figure out a way to get there (laughs) right that's awesome yeah absolutely um okay now this the fun question how does it feel to be named after one of the great hitters of all time right oh thanks for noticing yeah my parents were huge minnesota twins fans (laughs) 
my dad was doing his doctorate at University of Minnesota. My parents would go to Twins games. They were very young. They didn't expect to have me. When they found out they were having me, they were sure I was a boy. So oh my, my mom was like pregnant and ran into Rod Carew at a television studio where he was doing a show. And she said, Rod Carew, I'm going to name my baby after you. And he was so no. taken with this that he started a relationship with my parents and like followed my birth and like invited me to games. And apparently I was like two years old standing on top of the dugout and they were like tossing me. Oh signs my gosh. On the team. Yeah, it's crazy. And then later in life, his name, you know, I, my whole life, I wasn't so into sports. Um, definitely, my, you know, my dad made sure I knew how to play baseball. I didn't throw like a girl, quote unquote, I could do the mm -hmm. things, but I wasn't like a big fan. And, um, but later in my life, I realized Rod Carew, Panamanian-born, then became a Jewish convert because he married yep. a Romanian Jewish woman. So here, and then I became a Jewish convert. So I was like, this is the right name for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to the Twins game tomorrow. So if I happen to see Rod Carew, no way. I'm going to I'm oh, gonna go up. That's and, awesome. Yeah, he's obviously continues to be a big folk hero here in the Twin Cities when, when he comes back to visit and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Well, most of the time he's on he's in LA. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Well, I am so grateful that you've taken the time to do this. I hope a billion people buy your book, not only so that you'll become <laughs> famous, but also because I just think it's where we, it's the kind, very kind of stuff we need to do. You know, it's, I, I, as I was reading your book, I was thinking of like five different friends who need to read it and would really appreciate it and feel like they found a soul sister in you and your journey. So I'm really oh. glad you wrote it. And um, I, I just wish you all the best and I'll be tracking Thank your, you. you know, tracking you on social and watching. And hoping that, I'll, you know, maybe if you uh, get to the Twin Cities and do a little book reading here, I'll come out and give you a standing ovation. Oh, that would be wonderful. Oh, thank you so much <laughs> for the support, Tony. It's great. Um, and I want to invite your audience to uh, engage with me. I'm super open and really want to talk to folks who resonate with these ideas of becoming more wild. So can I say where to reach me? Yeah, and it'll be in the show notes, too. Uh, there'll be links in the show okay. notes of how to get to your website and you on the socials and how to buy your book and everything. Yeah. Okay. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much. I'm also looking forward to your book coming out and uh, love the cross promotion and the mutual admiration. So Thanks. huge privilege to be here. Thank you. Thank you.